G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1462. G'day, and it is entitled Mad Gods and Iron Men. Our podcast title is Pod Animation. I'm Rob Jan. Jan Solo for the next several weeks as co-host Megan McHugh is enjoying a well-deserved R&R. Or is that in context of our radio station R&R&R? Never sure. Well, apologies for last week. I think I gave you the wrong show number there. Just part of the obfuscation of Zero G. Well, the Iron Men part of today's show, well, Iron Man that is, Anthony Edward Stark. Now, as you may know, 2023 is notionally the Marvel Cinematic Universe year that the Battle of Avengers Compound was fought in upstate New York and won by, well, pretty much all of the Avengers. Big roster. And that's a lot, actually, battling against the forces of Thanos, the Mad Titan. Not the Thanos responsible for snapping half of all life in the universe into dust, as seen in the film Avengers Infinity War, whom Thor eventually killed after the Geiger deadly deed, but rather a younger version from the past. It's highly significant that Thanos never thought thought the Avengers before, that Thanos at least, whereas the key Avengers had five long years after the snap to ponder their defeat by the older Thanos. And more importantly, in the case of Tony Stark in particular, to ponder strategies and tactics to defeat him, even though he was dead, because, well, you never know what other Thanos-level enemies might threaten Earth. Anyway, 2023 in the MCU, and a particular month too, October. That's right, this month is when Tony Stark, with a lot of help from his mates, saved the universe and a half. So I think he's fictionally owed at least a few tracks to notionally memorise that. Tony Stark, he was Iron Man, casting no shade, of course, on the worthy Riri Williams as Iron Heart, or indeed the formidable Colonel James Rhodes, War Machine, Iron Patriot. A unreasonable facsimile thereof, which was seen in the recent Secret Invasion television series. Now, of course, in the Marvel comic books, Tony Stark still is Iron Man, so let's have a quick whiplash around some of his most recent adventures. Now, in the main title, the main book, that is, The Invincible Iron Man, Mr Stark has come a bit of a cropper, having his fortune and most of his other assets stripped from him, once again, in a harrowing story by Jerry Dugan, as illustrated and coloured and lettered by Juan Frigeri, Brian Valenza and Joe Caramanga. Well, actually, it's the evil cosmic-powered villain known as Philong who has done all these deeds. He has not paused in his persecution of the Earth's mutant community, but extended his vengeful reach to include Tony Stark. Things are pretty bad. Stark's got no armour, but he's going to build another one. He has an alliance with Wilson Fisk, that is the kingpin, crime lord of New York City, Rhodey's in jail and having a hell of a time there, being the subject of targeted attacks. And Tony is about to marry Emma Frost. Say what? (laughs) Well, it's a ruse, kind of, as Tony has allied himself with Frost as well. But hey, it gives everyone an excuse to do wedding issue covers and crossovers with X-Men comics, so there's that. (laughs) I don't know, whenever you deal with... um, 
X-Men comics, the artwork immediately gets taller. Have you ever noticed that? It's like it's in Cinemascope or something, except for Wolverine. <laughs> in his secondary book, I Am Iron Man, Mr. Stark has been undergoing all sorts of one-shot adventures focused on particular aspects of his career. Deservedly so, as 2023 is the anniversary of his first appearance in 1963. Tales of Suspense... Issue number 39. So the old boy is 60 years and old and still invincible, except when he's not, as in this case. Lots of interesting stories in the four or so issues of I Am Iron Man so far, full of fun team-ups and old friends and foes. Uh, Doctor Strange is there too, uh, who's a polar opposite of Tony Stark, you know, magic versus science. And But they are awesome facial hair bros still, which is something that still irritates Doctor Strange when... Tony brings it up. In Contest of Chaos, number one, a sort of an annual book, they've got, um, he's been teamed up with Storm and he's also battled against her in a crystalline kingdom. In Ultimate Invasions, well, they're bringing back the old Ultimates universe. Now, you may know that the Ultimates was a line of Marvel comics that they bought out to give you a sort of a harder-edged, more grounded-in-reality take on the Marvel heroes. It ran through many iterations for different titles, Iron Man, Fantastic Four and so on. Eventually, it was wound up during that whole big chaotic munging together where they broke down the different multiverse worlds and uh, destroyed most of them but sort of folded some of the characters from them into the regular Marvel universe. The Ultimates universe also served as the inspiration for the plot lines and the characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They figured that that would work better. Most notably, of course, in the case of Samuel L. Jackson embodying the character of Nick Fury. He was first used as a reference in the Marvel Ultimates comics. So, you know, it was um, the movies imitating the comic books quite literally there in terms of casting. Anyway, they are now doing a story where the Ultimates are invading the regular MCU universe with no doubt Tony Stark along for the ride. So it'll be Stark versus Stark. Can you have too many of them? Yes, you can. (laughs) Now, speaking of the future in the main Avengers comic, we haven't seen Tony yet, but he will be popping up there. We've got Kang from the future. You know Kang, the guy who's the supervillain in the new Loki series? also seen in uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania. Time traveller from the future, from the, is it the 30th century, I think? Something like that. Not quite sure where he stems from in the MCU. Uh, Anyway, Kang comes from the future. He's wounded and defeated and gives this awful warning to the current Avengers who've recently shuffled their roster around. And no doubt that is going to involve some stark, mad science along the way. It always does. All right, so lots going on in the Marvel Universe and the comic books. Not so much in the MCU anymore since Tony is dead, but there will be a Marvel Zombies animated series, or reanimated series, coming up in the not-too future. Uh, And that is going to, no doubt, have uh, an Iron Man component somewhere. All right, so where are we? We're going to play you a, a commemorative track. This is the TikTok Tony Stark version by an artiste called Shabnam Salek. Uh, Just a bit of a tribute to Mr. Tony Stark, who saved us all in fiction. (laughs) Hello, I'm Ray Harryhausen, animation pioneer. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. All right, 
Now, we're looking at a DVD here called Mad God, and I've got to make sure I don't call it Mad Dog because I keep doing that in my head. It is a Shudder release, you know, the um, award-winning horror streaming service, and it's a single disc, the movie, plus a bunch of extras as well. Now, every now and then, you run into a movie that's a long-term passion project, and Mad God is certainly striding into that one glorious animated step at a time. So we're talking science fiction horror here, folks, of a type that's pretty much on a map normally explored by very distinct and eclectic live-action movies. But, you know, people have done this before, but oh, never quite like this. It is created by Emmy and Oscar-winning director, writer, animator, visual effects supervisor and producer Phil Tippett. Now, you know his name from the credits of a lot of movies, but you may not know it yet. Although, if you are of a certain age, you'll remember seeing a lot of his work in a lot of the movies that I'll talk about in a moment. But I will just... In case you don't know what stop animation is, and you know, you may not. You know, we live in a world of computer-generated imagery now, and some of these older legacy techniques are not where they are. Look, it's really simple, basically. It is taking advantage of the actual bedrock of movies, of motion pictures, of moving pictures. Okay, you've got 24 frames per second, which is pro projected on the screen in order to give you the illusion of a moving picture get that, you know how that works, uh, each frame advances. Well, in this case, it's not just photographs of just people or landscapes or whatever being done. It's actually models. So when I say that, I mean model creatures generally, although there's more than that in this movie. So, okay, you've got a little, little uh, creature on a, an armature, so it's bendable like an action figure. Let's go with that. And you take a photo of it in a little model set, then you move it just the tiniest bit of refraction. And so then you move it again, take another picture, move it again, take another picture. String them all together and you end up with stop animation. So we've seen this in for a long, long time. Gertie the Dinosaur, you know, going back into the early days of cinema. Uh, they did a bit of that in um, King Kong, a lot of that, most of it in King Kong, the original movie in the 1930s. Uh, Ray Harryhausen with all of his fighting skeletons and dinosaurs, and so on. It's a, it's a long and amazing kind of art medium that has inhabited cinema for a very long time, kind of supplanted now by stop animation, but, you know, uh, by CGI, but, you know, it's still there in the toolbox. Now, this movie, Mad Dog, is sort of like a World War One's big day out in hell. If hell was the lower depths of Baron Harkonnen's castle on his homeworld, and if John Carpenter and uh, John W. Campbell's uh, The Thing had already gotten there first, as painted by Hieronymus Bosch and scripted by Dante for a banned issue of 2018. It's that kind of thing. And the extras on the DVD are quite fun too. Now, Phil Tippett, the creator of all this, has worked with Industrial Light and Magic, DreamWorks and his own Tippett Studio had a long and storied career. In 1977, he was one of the two people, along with John Berg, who worked with George Lucas to create that stop 
motion miniature chess scene. You know the holographic one where where uh, C3PO and Chewbacca are playing, and uh, you know he's Freepio uh, is advised to lose because he get his arms ripped out of his sockets. That one. In 1980, Phil Tippett was back with ILM, working on The Empire Strikes Back, and the AT-ATs, the All-Terrain Armoured Transport, Imperial Walkers, as well as the, the Tantans, the Riding Beasts, in the long shots, they're all the work of Phil Tippett and the ILM animation departments using stop animation. These are really sophisticated high points of that art, I thought. Uh, in 1981, he was doing what they call go motion because he he uh, pioneered this sort of new term for it uh, in Dragon Slayer, if you remember that one. Uh, got an Academy Award nomination for that one. 1983, he was in the uh, still Lu- with Lucasfilm doing the creature shop work for Return of the Jedi. Got an Oscar for that. Uh, in 86, he was working on RoboCop, the the um, Paul Verhoeven original movie and the uh, the assault robot, the riot robot ED209, he animated that. So that was like the adversary for Robocop. Around about that time he sort of thought, well, you know, this is, this is how are we doing with all this stop animation? Is it going to be eclipsed? Well, in 1991 it was. Uh, he was doing, um, using go motion, working on the dinosaur effects for Jurassic Park. When uh, the CGI team, headed up by Dennis Murin, came in with computer-animated test footage for the T-Rex, and Spielberg loved that, you know, and Tippett famously said, I'm extinct now. But because he had such a a, a great expertise with uh, understanding the movement of creatures and flesh-and-blood animals, uh, he was asked to become a supervisor for the animation of the... uh, the dinosaur shots. So, in a way, he sort of evolved to do that. But in the back of his head, and it had been since um, Robocop, he was working on the idea of his own sort of passion project uh, of stop animation. And these sort of projects do pop up in the careers of special effects artists every now and then. Sometimes it has to wait till they retire to get it fully realised. But in this case, he started working on Mad God in 1980, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Later on, Tippett went on to do work for uh, Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, spinning off the connection with Robocop, so he was like the man behind the bugs, and also worked on uh, Universal's Virus, uh, Disney's My Favourite Martian and Jean Dubont's The Haunting for DreamWorks. He also worked on Evolution and went on to direct Starship Troopers 2, Hero of the Federation. So, you know, he spanned that out into a bigger career. Worked on Twilight in the Twilight Saga, Dragon Heart, one of my favourite dragon movies, the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, Star Wars The Force Awakens. So, you know, doing all sorts of um, special effects supervising jobs in those. So... He began work on this Mad God project, but um, as he was setting up his own uh, Tippett studio, so I think that was like in 1990, but he'd been thinking about it before then. Uh, he didn't have the budget for the film, so eventually in 2010, when he went back to it, um, he started a, a Kickstarter project, and that kind of moved on from there. If it hadn't been picked up, it would be just snippets of Tippett, <laughs> like the lost projects of Ray Harryhausen's tantalisingly unrealised War of the Worlds, or Willis O'Brien's War Eagles. These are legendary lost projects in the 
um, stop animation feel. But because his colleagues at Tippett Studio saw some of his um, 35 millimeter footage that he shot back in the day, they said, you know, we really should do this, revisit this now. We've got digital cameras, so we don't have to do all that sort of 35 millimeter mucking about. Um, you know, light meters, all that sort of stuff. It, it just doesn't matter really, and it does. The process is still the same. Basically, you're taking a picture and then taking another picture and moving the characters, all that sort of stuff. It's the same, but the workflow is greatly facilitated by using uh, the digital medium. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. How does this film play out? Well, okay, a character dressed in World War I-style diesel punk greatcoat and gear, he's got a gas mask, descends into a diving bell through hellish sort of strata down 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 they go they're an assassin bound to carry out a mission with a suitcase that contains an explosive infernal device as they descend through the inferno they witness to all manner of individual and group calamities and the question arises are they the first to be sent into this abyss well the thing about this movie is its look it is just staggering there are you know, so many tiny little details in it. Um, uh, at one stage, I found myself making out a couple of characters in the background, rusted out classic genre robots. There was Gort, there was Robbie the Robot, and a few others in there in the background. Uh, 44 gallon drums spilling toxic waste, and, uh, you know, there are blue tinted barbed wire fenced worlds, guns tracking to the soundtrack of air raid sirens, wretched humanoid like souls were coming unraveled, even creepier when it's done in stop motion. Yes, this is a nightmarish landscape that doesn't just put in its shocks and horrors for effect, although that is obviously part of the the uh, operating standard for this movie. It does show the effects of perpetual war, which is something we all need reminding about on this yet another terrible day for the world as it's unfolding. Now, the wretched victims and mutants are all basically just glanced by the character in passing. Sometimes doors open, sometimes the entire backs of structures are opened. There are giants being electrocuted, strangely, and humanoids that um, they are deranged in body but still functional, even to the extent of taking out the trash in bins from their weird little living spaces. It's all little vignettes and uh, shadow boxes. The, the soldier is a bit like, I'm trying to get a metaphor going here, Snake Pliskin journeying through hell, trying not to get involved because he's on a mission, you know, that kind of thing. The stop animation is really, really good. As they explain in the commentaries and the various bits and pieces that are in the featurettes attached to the movie, it's all very experimental and mistakes are embraced and incorporated in this. I have seen some bits and pieces like this that before uh, that are kind of similar. You know, there's a movie called Nine, as in the number nine. Uh, there's also a, an animated movie called Strings as well. Um, maybe some bits from Eraserhead, some of 
uh, Guillermo del Toro's work. Uh, there's a lot of inspiration drawn from all those sorts of things in there. See, these mistakes are embraced and incorporated into the way this is done. So if they decide that they're going to, they have an idea as they're going along in this, they can stop, quite literally, and proceed in that direction. And I think it's actually quite good that they've been able to do this because it, it loosens things up a bit. Uh, there is a one creature in it, there's a wearing a medieval plague mask, you know, probably encountered that imagery during our own plague uh, you know that long nose sort of beak with the goggles and a writhing mass of strange ectoplasmic creations coming out of the character as it moves along oh, it's hard to explain how this looks in words because it is a very visual thing i'm going to go to another track the phil tippett explains the life influences that uh, have led him to create this movie and create it in the way that he did. And one of them is Bob Dylan. Now, he talks about Bob Dylan's use of cut-ups, which is to say um, that, that technique where you write down lots of sentences on the page and then you cut, cut them up and then re-put them together in an artistic way. David Bowie used it, Surrealists have used it, uh, and it makes sense in terms of this film. We've got these so many contrasting kaleidoscopic images as the character moves through this strange landscape. Bereft of a of a of a Dante guide to help him out too, which is although he does have a map, have a map so that's important. <laughs> and he, unlike uh, Dante, has uh, a jeep to drive in at one stage and a motorcycle. So this all there's a, there are elements in there that help him along on his way. So, but. Speaking of Bob Dylan, um, there's a track that Dylan did, Subterranean Homesick Blues. I thought, well, the film is blue-tinted, it's kind of underground. Uh, I'm sure the character is homesick, he'd rather not be there, but he's been at war for so long that he probably doesn't remember his home. Uh, And memories do play a big part in this movie too. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I also can't say that the particular story itself appeals to me, but that's all right. It doesn't have to. This is such an experimental piece of filmmaking that's so bizarre and unusual that it just grabbed me anyway. You know how that... It does it sometimes. Sometimes the the, uh, the medium overtakes the message. Not that it doesn't have a, a bad message to start with, but it's a very harrowing one. And if you're not in the mood for that, well, you know, put it aside. But do go back to it if you are into some science fiction horror and also into the noble, weird and ignoble art of stop animation. Now, Phil Tippett was saying that there was a lot of influences upon this film. It's a, because it took place and evolved over 30-odd years, uh, or more, actually. It uh, vacuumed up a lot of things that he'd been studying and looking at, from the world of fine art to movies and other stop animation work, too, like uh, Czech animator Karel Zeman, who lived from 1910 to 1989. It was basically like the, uh, the George Melies of Czech cinema, film director, artist and animator. So check indeed some of his uh, work out online. You'll be able to find it quite easily. That's Karel, K-A-R-E-L, Z-Man, Z-E-M-A-N. And you can, you'll be able to readily see how it influenced film 
Tippett's work in Mad God. There's also the work of Hieronymus Bosch, most obviously, I think. And there's several creatures in this film that remind me of some of Bosch's surreal work brought to life, or proto-surreal, I should say. Um, also, Ray Harryhausen, the great stop animator as well, has had a lot of influence upon his style. That's Tippett and King Kong too, of course. Uh, there are the influences of Jacques Tati. When I was talking about opened up houses and buildings before, individual rooms becoming shadow boxes, that's it, where you get the uh, the Tati influence part, partly. But there's also a, a strange little warped sense of humour in play in some of the little vignettes that our character encounters as he descends into the hellish landscape that kind of remind me a little bit of Tati in a weird, twisted way. There's a lot in this... You know, there's like Samuel Beckett, uh, Dante, as we were describing before. Uh, the, the influence of Tex Avery and Mash, Max Fleischer's darker approach to animation, sort of paralleling the more sunny aspects of uh, Disney. And Phil Tippett makes an appearance in this film too, by the way. He looks rather the worst for wear in this, and there's a story behind that, but I'll let them tell that themselves. Uh, also, you can see very, very strongly uh, David Lynchian aspects and uh, the other David, Cronenberg too, the body horror stuff involved in this. Uh, yeah, I know, yuck, but that is what it is in terms of this film. All right, so there's some other stuff in here in, in the film itself. Uh, but I'm going to run out of time to rabbit on about it, so I won't. Um, I think that the the main thing about it is it's very visceral, but it's not all gore. It's not all gore. There is a lot of emotional weight to the characters. And, yeah, it's... Uh, I was playing Bob Dylan before. There's a little bit of... Um, I feel like a, a Jack Kerouac sort of road trip going on in this um, because the character is, is hoofing or driving past these various sort of... Um, things that are happening and not really taking part in them at times, which is why I refer to him as a snake pliskin of the underworld in this case. And that is the, the weird aspect of it. So it's kind of like um, a cabinet of curiosities, which is where Guillermo del Toro comes in because Tippett has snared him to be a commentator on this DVD. And I'm, I'm working my way through that now, and that's a joy and a delight as they just talk about monster-making and creatures and the, the art of uh, incorporating them and giving the characters emotional weight and depth. And there are moments in this film where I'm thinking, wow, there's a... There's a how do I describe this? A sort of a crusted over uh, doll that reaches up and makes this gesture and it's so affecting when you see it. It's that kind of film. I also want to mention the, that the way that they get and use their, their hands, actually they get it into the dirt and the muck of this film in a tactile way, the filmmakers. You see that on the, uh, on the making of stuff that's attached to it. You know, it's... Um, it's something that you do miss if you work a lot with computers, uh, and that may change when we get with, with more virtual interfaces uh, and manipulation of, of CGI in a direct, real-time sort of fashion. You know, where you're in a rig or a suit, or or you've got some sort of Waldo hand-manipulated devices that allow you to actually sculpt in in the virtual dimensions. That may change, but you miss that when you're working with computers all the time. Doesn't mean that you can't do it, but yeah, you want that. Other thing, especially if you've come from a, a tactile world like stop animation and sculpting and that kind of thing. So, yeah, uh, there's an amazing amount of stuff in the back end of Mad God in its, um, in its extra bits and pieces. But that Del Toro and Tippett uh, 
partnership in the commentary, the audio commentary, is just gold. And I'd love to listen to that. I'm going to uh, listen to more of that um, later on today, I think. All right, so that is the Shudder release of Mad God. Phil Tibbet is the the director and the uh, the person behind all of this. With the the making of stuff, uh, they also include some interviews with some of the film students and the art the art academy students who who pitched in and worked on this too. So you know, it's very much a, a relatively low budget sort of production, but it's a passion project, and it's like, okay, this is this is what this. Um, world-class stop animator chooses to work on when he's motivated entirely by his own sort of passions and uh, and emotions and <laughs> you just think oh no wonder it was never funded by a mainstream sort of cinema or studio i can i can see why in terms of yeah nah maybe zero g sort of evaluation i actually think this transcends all of that um it's it's not for the timid, I will say that, and you do need a strong stomach to watch some of the scenes in it. But my gosh, the artistry on display here. Well, it's like Hieronymus Bosch did come to life and maybe he's actually one of the production designers of this or something. Wow. Phil Tippett's Mad God. Shutter release, single disc with extras on it. I do want to have a little problem playing this on... Um, uh, computer disk drives. It didn't seem to really want to boot up, but it worked all right fine on um, actual DVD players. So be aware of that. But you can also stream it, I think, for rent from um, YouTube. You know how they do that. So it's possible to get it there. And I'm sure it will probably appear other places in time. What a world we live in. Hmm. Broadcast mode. This is Crichton, the service android aboard the Starship Zero-G on 3 R FM. SOS! SOS! Mayday! Help! I am being held captive by rogue makeup artists who want to cover my face in plaster and latex rubber. Ah, all right, okay. So we have been talking about Mad God today, a shutter release on single disc DVD, an exceptionally weird, even by zero G standards, bit of stop animation. Now, uh, I've also been watching so much at the moment, there's there's way too much in the genre. In the genres, Zero-G infests and inhabits to go into it all today, but uh, just briefly running through it quickly, running up that hill, as Stranger Things would say. Uh, Finish watching the Ahsoka series, the Star Wars one. I thought it ended really well. I I had my doubts about it as we went along, but um, Rosario Dawson's uh, sort of pragmatic, uh, benevolent, but armed to the teeth with two lightsabers, Smile has gotten to me, I think, after a while. She's just got such, exudes such awesome confidence. Uh, this is quite different from her sort of tearaway you know, younger days in the uh, the Rebel Alliance and as a Jedi Knight. So I thought that ended particularly well here. And, of course, we've got um, Grand Admiral Thrawn, yet another one of those uh, Mickelson scions running around, actually justifying the magnificent, huge expense it must have been to try and get him back from his exile in another galaxy far, far away. I mean, you think about it. This is the far, far away galaxy, and now they're in another galaxy that's even further, far, far away. (laughs) 
But they do manage to return him. Spoiler, you knew that's what was going to happen anyway. I do wonder if that's going to have some deeper influence on the Star Wars um, franchise. Is Thrawn going to come back? He's not going to just come back in the Ahsoka series if there's a second one of those. But, you know, are they planning something more like um, like a movie based on him? They haven't been doing too well with the movies, I, I think, recently. Um, I, You know, I, I'm not really fond of a lot of the Star Wars movies. I think there's... Um, a fair bit of nonsense going on in them. But in this case, you know, I think they've managed to introduce a character from the sort of expanded universe. Is it Timothy Zahn created the um, Admiral Thrawn character? I think he did. Uh, and this sort of um, blue-painted uh, character, he's he's actually rocking up as quite impressive. He, he seems to be an Imperial officer who knows what he's doing, uh, has a good sense of strategy, is able to come up with tactics on the fly, uh, he seems to be actually beloved by his men, or at least worshipped in some weird imperial way. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I look forward to seeing some more of him. He's a clever clogs and a nice line in sarcasm and, and so on. I don't know if I can be bothered going back and uh, seeing all of the immense backstory as shown in the animated series uh, Rebels and um, the Clone Wars, not the Tartakovsky one, but the um, the other more, more normal series. Uh, but, you know... Who knows? It could happen because there's a lot of Mandalorian stuff wrapped up in that. I've also been hoping that there will be uh, more Mandalorian stuff in future. But, you know, Sabine and Ren uh, scratched that itch for a while in this and it was great to hear David Tennant playing the uh, the droid and, you know, the whole thing with the space whales and good stuff, I thought, really. And, you know, it all ended up with, and another spoiler here, Stormtrooper zombies, stormies. Wow, or Stormbees, you know. I know that that's been a thing in Star Wars expanded stuff before, like in there's a novel called Death Troopers. Um, but, you know, maybe if they'd done that more, I'd be, I'd be cleaving to the Star Wars universe now instead of only really coming back in for The Mandalorian and uh, other of its ilk. But, yeah, all right, go for it. And I think that... Um, it's uh, landed in a pretty good place for future Star Wars series. That's on uh, Disney Plus, by the way. Also on Disney Plus is the new series and season two of Loki, a very intense first episode with time for a little bit of amusing banter between Loki and Morbius as they unravel all of that Kang the Conqueror stuff that's coming towards them at great speed. Poor old Loki being dragged from pillar to post across time periods. Uh, of course, in the wake of Sylvie assassinating one of the Kangs, at least. And we'll see how that plays out. Oh, it's great to see uh, Ki Hai Kwan there playing a character called uh, Ouroboros, whom um, we also have seen, not the Ouroboros character, but in, uh, in everything, everywhere, all at once. And, of course, back in the day as Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Good to see that actor getting some more action now. And how is Sylvie going to end up in Broxton, Oklahoma in 1982 at a McDonald's. What's she going to be doing there? Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. Until next week. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.